Welcome to Mindful Conversations with Matt and Rob. Hi. It is part two of an episode talking about trauma-informed, being trauma-informed, and we have back with us for part two, Ann Smith. And again, it's great to have you with us. Thank you. Happy to be here. And she's from Trauma-Free World. Wouldn't it be wonderful to live in a trauma-free world? Oh, definitely. Yeah, it would be great. It's a Tuesday morning here. And uh, did you guys have, and before we started recording, you said that you had a bunch of people over to the house this weekend. That was your weekend gig. Yeah, I love hosting people, love filling our house and space with people. So Mm -hmm. this weekend we were home and we had the opportunity to be hosts. You, You were in your sweet spot. Yes, it brings me a lot of joy mm-hmm. when our house is full. Amen. Nice. Dr. Rob, what about you? What What was on the agenda for the weekend? I think you had birthday parties. We had uh, my daughter and her husband and the two grandkids with us. So we did do birthday parties. We did my grandsons and my son-in-laws. If I remember right, Sandy said there was going to be a surprise cake because I think your son-in-law has a birthday close to his son, your grandson. Right. And it's oftentimes like competition. It is. So he got his own cake, I understand. He got his own cake and his own party, which seldom, if ever, happens. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it was cool. Yeah. Um, Well, I had an experience this weekend. I'm just, I mean, I was polite and asked you first, but really I'm super excited about what happened in my world over the weekend. Cool. What happened? I did something that most people have not historically been able to experience. I was at Ford Field and I saw the Detroit Lions win a football game. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. They did win. (laughs) And I would say rather dominantly. Yeah. My daughter, Kaylin, she lives down in Augusta, Georgia. She was up. um, She's kind of a Detroit, like, she has, like, the shirt, like, Detroit versus everybody Mm -hmm. shirt. Yeah. She's a big Detroit person. And so her boyfriend, Spencer, shout out to Spencer, um, he's a Washington Commander fan. That's who played the Lions on Sunday. And so (laughs) he had the you know, those shirt on and everything. (laughs) And we just happened to be like in a Washington stronghold section. There was a lot of them. Well, the game didn't go well. No, it didn't. And it didn't go well from the start all the way to the end. So there was some grumpy looking faces in our section, but we were having a lot of fun. Yeah. That's, that's kind of a prerequisite historically for Detroit to win. Yeah, that's why I'm celebrating. It's like yes. I actually was present. It was actually my only game in Ford Field. <gasps> and wow. you got to see them win. And I got to see them win. So I counted a huge, not that I caused them to win, <laughs> but it was. Take credit. It was fantastic. But there, there's a little peek into our personal lives. We we do like to enjoy um, lots of fun things. We don't just sit at this table and record podcasts. No, we don't. Well, our first episode, and you shared, we talked about, had a conversation regarding what it means to be trauma-informed. And we talked about maybe rehearsing a little bit about what connection and attachment are. So let's just renew our thoughts on being trauma-informed and what it means to be focused on connection and attachment. 
Yeah, I think we finished and we were talking about the, we had talked about the attachment cycle. We talked just about how important relationships are and finding places and spaces where we can build connection with someone else. We heal in the context of safe relationships. Uh, We were talking about how once we feel connected and attached to somebody, it gives us a sense of self-efficacy. Like I can stand up for myself and I have something to offer the world. It helps build our self-esteem. It helps grow healthy emotional development. We can regulate ourselves a little bit better. And um, it just gives us a view of, of the world that has a perspective of a trusting lens. So it basically, if I'm hearing you, it basically equips us to deal with life on a broken planet with a sense, with a sense of um, not overconfidence, but confidence. Yes. Is that what I you're... Like, well, I really like how you put that. It gives us, yeah, a, just a really good way to exist in a broken place. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, there's no way of escaping that. No. So we live in the midst of brokenness. Let's just, a disclaimer, brokenness is the norm. Yes. I mean, that's just, that's the cards that have been dealt. You don't get a different hand. No, life is an equal opportunity destroyer at some times. Yeah, Pete Scazzaro, the author of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, states that no person escapes their family of origin unscathed. No. It's Isaiah says, born in sin, shaped in iniquity. Yes. So the good news is you're normal. You're experiencing (laughs) brokenness. Welcome to planet Earth. We all share in that state of being. Is that fair? I think so. So we can both commiserate and empathize and say we're on the same journey. Yeah. And we're seeking, and you said, which I think we've said before, but the idea that if I'm broken in relationship, I'm going to be healed in relationship. So the target is I want to be healed, but I want to learn, and we made that point last episode, the plasticity of um, our emotional state, our attachment state. We can become a healthy individual who is safe and secure to be around. And that's an authentic hope versus a false hope, right? It's we can heal to Anne's point. Yes. We can be we can become resilient. Bingo. That's the goal. That's the goal. That's the trajectory. What about these four key abilities that flow from connection? Yeah, these are some some things that we would want to grow in our connection, safe connection type relationships. So the first key ability that, um, that I have on my list here is that it's the ability to negotiate needs, uh, the ability to um, kind of a give and take in relationship. I've, most relationships, even our conversation that started here, started with uh, what are we going to talk about today and what are we not going to talk about today? What do you feel like is important? What do I feel like is important? And how are we going to negotiate what actually comes out and what happens? And so the ability to negotiate is actually a strength. Um, it gives us the ability to uh, provide deference to somebody else's thoughts and ideas. Uh, I don't have to be in control of everything. 
I can give into your thoughts and ideas. Um, it creates a it, safe space to learn and to grow. Yeah. And you can do the same for me. Yeah. Yes. Cool. Okay. Let's park here for a second. Sorry. This is resonating. <laughs> <laughs> well, seriously, because I believe you. Because um, the reality is when you came in, it was just you and I. I was kind of getting set up and getting the computer prepped and, and we were talking. You know, if I if I powered up, right? Hey, and thanks for your thoughts, but I've got a plan. If you could just submit to that plan, that would be great. Thanks. I mean, I am the producer, the host, the world's greatest podcast like director, <laughs> right? That's really not going to be fun for you. Right. Well, if you're healthy, you'll be like, okay, big guy, whatever, have it your way. Kind of like Burger King. Yeah. <laughs> and just kind of let me flow with it, realizing I'm unhealthy. Yeah. Right. If you're unhealthy, you're probably going to get triggered by that. And it's going to be kind of a dogfight. And then Dr. Rob has to come in, kind of mediate. <laughs> we have to go back and listen to Agree to Disagree two episodes yes. ago. And um, But powering up is a common dilemma in our culture. We want to one-up. Right. Is that true or is that just poor assessment on my part? I think it's true. I think it's most obvious in our culture and I do think it's part of the human experience in other cultures as well. I've seen it in other cultures too. But to Anne's point, when you power up, you lose the richness of the relationship and the opportunity to learn from another person. So it's kind of like intellectual pride versus intellectual humility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you forfeit you forfeit an opportunity to connect, which is what we're talking about. Trauma violates the ability to connect. And Anne is sharing with us ways that we reconnect. Mm. Yeah. I think that's kind of a journey for people too, that have experienced a lot of trauma because when we have, when we experience trauma, often we, we lose control. Yeah. We, we, we've lost control of the situation and things were done to us or towards us that were, we didn't want we didn't yeah. like, and they were out of our control. So it feels safe then to be able to control everything. Like if I can just control the whole world and hold, control all the situations, then yeah. nothing bad is going to happen to me again and I'll be safe. Yeah. When in reality, that's, um, we, we just can't control everything. And so that's part of the journey that, um, let's say all of us that are on, who've had trauma in our past, oh, definitely. talking about myself included, is that, Willingness to say, all right, I'm going to trust you and give you a little bit of control over the decisions that are going on because you feel safe. When that goes well, that's part of building a safe relationship. And It's part of reestablishing the safety that I think you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Trust is fundamental to that, right? Yes. It takes time to get yeah. there, but we can get there. I would say time and intentionality mm-hmm. because we're talking yeah. about you know, we're talking about recovering from trauma. If I'm working with somebody who's been traumatized, I need to be very intentional about how I approach and engage them and how I facilitate a trustworthiness. We have this, um, we call it the, um, we, we call it, um, I'm going to forget what it's called, but it's um, sharing power. Yeah. 
And when we're working with trauma, traumatized individuals, we want to share power with them. And two of the ways you could do that is to offer choices to Mm -hmm. them or offer compromises in different situations. That's good. I feel like that was, I, I don't know if this was the same for you when your kids were little, but there was some, when I, when my kids were little, so like, this is like 20 plus years ago, the parenting technique was this kind of, uh, um, children should obey the first time you say something with a happy heart. Like that was just this, this whole goal was to have these little robots walking around that was doing exactly what, what we said. What that's wrong. I don't know. Well, <laughs> well, let's put it okay. this way. It's not the best approach. <laughs> well, learning to submit to authority is yes. also very important. Yes, because it is. We do need to submit to authority on different situations um, for sure. There is a piece of teaching our kids to have a voice and teaching them to be able to compromise. That's also a really great skill. So I've completely come 180 on this and really have found like offering choices is really healthy in relationships. Um, So I guess with little kids, that could look like me saying to them, um, hey, it's time to get dressed. Do you want to put on your shirt first or do you want to put on your pants first? Yeah. Like really like empowering them to be able to make a decision, even though like, okay, I'm an adult. I'm a, I actually just want, we need to get dressed because we got to get to school. This right. Morning. But I'm giving them some kind of a choice in the middle of that. That can be a healthy. I think that is healthy because I personally believe that power is the only thing you cannot eradicate from a relationship. It's at the it's at the center. Power, authority, influence, control is at the center of all relationships. To your point, it looks different throughout lifespan, mm-hmm. and and it's right. It does help create a sense of safety. Yeah. I think that's smart to offer choices because it it's not just. It goes back to your trust. I think right. I'm communicating to you. I trust you to make good decisions mm-hmm. for us. Yeah, I think about. Um, offering compromises as well uh, offering a compromise to some uh, to somebody who's in trauma and is starting to ramp up it can be like throwing a life raft out to them yeah that's a great metaphor to help de-escalate the situation I had this I have this story there was a there was a young girl that we were working with and uh, it was Saturday morning it was time for her counseling appointment and she had just started um, cleaning up her room mm-hmm. and so uh, the counselor walked over to her and said, hey, it's it's time for your counseling appointment, so um, can you put aside what you're doing and come to counseling? And she got really mad. She's like, no, I'm cleaning up my room now, right now, and I want to finish it, um, and that's what I want to do. So the counselor, um, back and forth with this child a couple of different times, and then ended up in the office and was like, what am I going to do? She won't come to counseling. I can't fit her in any other time during today, whatever. And we both kind of looked at each other, and I'm like, I just said, okay, what can we do that would be really trauma-informed? And she's like, I got it. I'm going to offer a compromise. So she walked back into the room and just looked at her and said, you know what, can I offer you a compromise? And she was like, what's that? And she's like, a compromise means we both get what we want. How about this? I'm going to help you finish cleaning your room, and we're going to do counseling while we clean your room together. That's brilliant. It was brilliant. It is brilliant. Yeah. Especially for a child. And it models something for a child that adult can be safe, trauma-informed. Exactly. 
I like that story. Bingo. I like that story too. So with this now theme talking about connection strategies, let's continue Mm -hmm. on this because we've established there are challenges that, and the, the trust, trust is the ultimate foundation for any healthy relationship. Would that be right? I think maturity is because maturity is a function of trust, but I have no problem personally with either or. (laughs) When I think in terms of starting a relationship, I'm going to have the attitude. I might not say it, but my attitude is you, you don't necessarily have to trust me. Right. Over time, maybe that will change for you. And what I do in the relationship will earn your trust. Yes. Is that okay? That's I'm not pushing back. I, I I believe what you're saying. My point is I would never say to somebody, you should trust me. No, I wouldn't either. This is a public service announcement for those who are listening. Yeah. Just eradicate the statement that you might make to another human being. You can trust me. Just remove that from your vocabulary. (laughs) That's that's probably not a bad idea. (laughs) What I want you to do instead. Now I learned it the hard way. Yeah. So I've lived this. The reality is I would love the opportunity to earn your trust. That's what I would say. But that's a decision that you have to make. And it's a responsibility that I must take seriously. And I have to do it consistently. Yep. And I have to do it with kind of the long haul attitude. Yeah. Whether that's a parent to a child, a spouse to a spouse, a boss to a coworker. Friend to friend. Whatever it is, the reality is I'm here. I want to be with you. I would love the opportunity to build trust, but that's on, you have to decide if that's what you want. Okay. That's the end of my public service announcement. <laughs> and bring think, it, is that bring our it, first one? That is bring us back to connection strategies. What okay. stands out to you? Okay. So as we were talking about the attachment cycle, this is maybe just for anybody who's a little bit of a, um, maybe the psychologists in the room who are interested in that. In the, but this is practical. Anybody can, can notice this. In the attachment cycle, the attachment cycle is initiated by a person or a child who has a need, and they express that need, and then we respond to the need. So when we're talking about connection strategies, we're actually going to flip that on its head. And instead of waiting for the person to have a need and to express a need and to step into that, we're actually going to initiate connection we're going to be the ones that are going to reach across and initiate a connecting response and build in a pot in a positive attachment um, cycle. Let's call it the positive attachment cycle. Which would be, which would be critically important with the power differential between an adult and a child, correct? Correct. Or between someone who's had a lot of trauma and doesn't trust anybody. Right. So I'm going to, like you said, I'm going to build trust. I'm going to take the opportunity to step in and build trust by initiating positive connection That's with smart. you. It's intentional. It's it is right. intentional. Exactly. That's what you were saying. Yeah. I love that word, intentional. I do too. Yeah. Well, it's, it's wisdom. Wisdom is applying knowledge for the purpose of building life. Foolishness is the use of knowledge to, to, to bring destruction. That's really good. Thank you. It's not mine, but I think it's important that we use wisdom in our relationships. Mm -hmm. These are nuggets of wisdom. 
and I that like Anne is bringing. I, I like what Anne said that I'm initiating. That's that is turning it on its head because I think generally we think, oh, you're going to initiate, or we should initiate together, or some other um, constellation or mod or combination. And it's like, yeah, I'll initiate. Okay, so want to talk about some of the ways. I have a few ways that we can do this. Okay. It's not an exhaustive list. I'm sure you can think of lots of other ways, but I'll throw out some of the ones I have, and then I'm curious to hear oh, that's some cool. of the ones you have as well. And I'm also curious to hear you build off of, of some of the ones that I have here. <laughs> okay, so one of the ones that I really like is eye contact. Um. Eye contact can be a really powerful window into what's going on in someone else's world. Yeah. When you walked in today, I tried to be really intentional about looking in your eyes and showing you that I was really excited to see you and that I did. Yeah. yeah, I tried to do that because I'm trying to get better at that. That's not my natural go-to, but initiating a a welcoming look with your eyes can often be, and especially for a child, can be a really intentional way to communicate to them that you are important. Yeah. I was telling Matt earlier that that first look when you see somebody after, after they've been at school all day or your spouse after they walk in the house, after being apart from each other all day, that first look and communicating that I am really happy to see you can often set the tone for the whole rest of your day together or your time together. It's like Odin. He's happy to see you. Our golden was always happy. That's, that's what I'm thinking of when she says that. It's like, that was really a good point. I, I'm excited to be with you. Odin was so excited. He got up in our bed three times last night across the evening. (laughs) 80 pounds. <laughs> yeah, he's not a you. puppy. He's like, I didn't have good eye contact. <laughs> I'm just glad we're hearing a. about Odin again. <laughs> he That's a really cool point, yeah. though. I like that, yeah. that intentionality. Yeah. I had not thought about that. I did not have in my repertoire of connection intentional eye contact. Yeah. Often we use eye contact when we're disciplining our kids or where you have a negative word to say some, to someone, that can usually often be the time that we actually make eye contact. Yeah. But really being intentional about finding positive connection in, through our eyes is important. And with your work around the world, that's informed by culture, though, too, right? Because the Asian Filipinos, that, or like in some of the Native American cultures, eye contact could be a sign of disrespect. That's true. And I'll, what I'll say with that is, whether you use eye contact or not, being seen is what's behind that and what's important. Gotcha. Everybody wants to be seen and needs to be seen. That's really cool. Okay, I have a question. So you're being culturally sensitive. But if it's a cultural thing, like an Asian issue where a look is maybe disrespectful, is there also a human condition that longs to be seen? Is that what you're saying? I think we, I think there is a human condition that we want to know. So there could be a cultural layer yes. that can, in a sense, prevent me from feeling seen. And that might be an innate desire within me that if done correctly, I could connect with that person 
I think being sensitive to what, to, to how each culture uh, portrays being seen is important. Yeah. Every culture has a way to communicate. You are important and you are seen, Mm -hmm. you are valuable. That's cross-cultural. It just being sensitive to what that is within each culture Mm -hmm. would be important depending on where you're working. Yeah. But that goes back to what she said. I take the initiative. Like she did for me when I walked into the room. It's like, okay, I can take the responsibility and learn how that individual experience is being seen and then um, deploy that in a way that is respectful. Yes. Yeah. Love that. That is cool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Okay. Another one that I have is talking about um, healthy touch. So some of the interesting things that I've learned in reading about healthy touch is that healthy touch actually brings down cortisol level Mm -hmm. in our bodies, brings down that stress and anxiety feeling that we might have. It, it helps with digestion. It makes us absorb our food better. (laughs) This is so cool. It is cool. So building, coming up with a way to be intentional about healthy touch with other people who have experienced trauma, um, it, again, it could be a little tricky depending on what kind of abuse that they may have experienced, but building in safe, healthy touch can be really helpful. I think it's really important to remember, even with our biological kids, I guess, as the, you know, as, soon as they get older and older, we seem to distance ourselves from healthy touch maybe with our teenagers, but that is actually a really important way to connect with someone else. It's intentional. I, I am intentional with healthy touch with my grandkids, with my kids, um, with Sandy, try to be it. It's work because of my own trauma background to your point, but it's like, yeah. And with the boys, I can wrestle. That's a great one. Right. Yeah, it's, for boys. Yeah. Um, you can play sports, you know, basketball. You're defending each other and pushing up against each other and just being healthy. And with, with the girls, it might be going into their world and, you know, with a doll or expression or touching or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that is powerful. And we know hugs touch, to your point, hugs change <laughs> the physiological response in the body. Touch is critical. Yeah. I mean, as I'm thinking in my own life, my wife, Deanne, I mean, if we have what we call a stress-reducing conversation, it's a Gottman method. Yeah. You know, you take 20 minutes um, to process energy outside the relationship, but to do it inside the relationship to help get that energy out. But now I'm thinking it's probably important for me to integrate touch. Yeah. I mean, it's not only listening that she needs or I need it's also touch like a touch on the shoulder like hey I'm here I'm listening you're important to me um maybe holding her hand or whatever may be appropriate right I think that's something that's that's new in my repertoire that I want to be intentional about I think when it's harder for you I like I I find ways of doing it with Sandy so I'll say to her, this side of the bed or this side of the couch is my acreage. And you stay on your side of the acreage. 
And then I'll go to her side of the acreage and say, you're encroaching on my part of the acreage. <laughs> but it's my way of having fun with her and just saying, you're important to me through touch, yeah. safe, healthy touch. Yeah. I like her list. There's more. Oh, there's I know. More. I'm anxious to hear more. Okay. And that, the next one I think that's fun to talk about is behavior matching. So this taps into mirror neurons, which is how we learn about the world as a baby. Mm -hmm. The example I always talk about and is, um, so how many of you, when you feed a baby with a spoon, let's say you've got a little pot of applesauce and you're going to feed the baby, how many of you just open your mouth as you offer the spoon to the baby? Yeah, I mean, everybody I know, right? Because you want the baby to open their mouth. You're trying to get them to mirror back what you're doing. That's how little people learn about the world. And those mirror neurons are super important because they give us a sense of we, we are in this together. We're in the world together. We can relate to each other. We can have similar emotions. We, not me, I'm alone. I'm by myself. So um, behavior matching can be a, a way that we can connect with somebody uh i think this is a really great way to connect especially with teenagers is if a teenager's leaning up against a wall and i'm going to go talk to them i'm going to lean up against the wall right next to them if they cross their arms i'm going to cross my arms so i'm just showing them that we're together we can do this just by behavior match we can or we can call out something that's the same like oh my gosh we're both wearing red shirts today that's the same we have something going on that's the same that's just a super simple way to try to, try to connect with somebody. Um, maybe it's unconscious to them, but it's intentional on our part. Bandura and social learning theory. Before the technology existed for the brain, I'm thinking I'm correct on my timeline, was talking about how important modeling is. And then those mirror neurons that you're talking about, that's huge. Again, the intention, I mean, the idea that you're presenting, the ideas kind of go into my toolbox. You know, I want to bring these back out and kind of use them. So I'm, I'm really excited about being able to, (laughs) to use these. I'll, I'll use Dean as my guinea pig. Okay. Yeah. We'll ask how that goes later. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Another one is using the word yes. Yes is a connecting word. Think of it like this. If I just say to you, yes, 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 yes. Doesn't that feel so much lighter than no, 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 no. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Rob, can we get Mexican for lunch today? Yes. (laughs) That feels so good. (laughs) So interestingly, Children hear negative messages eight times more than they hear positive messages. That's tragic. It is. But being intentional about finding ways to say yes can be just a simple way to connect. I actually was teaching this concept and a mom came up to me and she said, I heard this same thing. And so what I started to do was every time my kids call my name and say, mom, I just say yes. I was like, um, can I forever and always use that? That's and good. It is good. It is yes. very good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It calls back to that, um, the idea of the piggy bank that you were talking about last week, Matt. Mm-hmm. 
This is like throwing a coin in the piggy bank. Yes, I will be here with you. Yes, I will answer when you just call my name. Yes, I'm paying attention to what you have to say. Um, Now, we can't always say yes. There are sometimes we have to use use a no. But if we were building up that bank of yeses, that can be easier to withdraw a no. So let's do let's do a little role play. Okay. I'm the kid, you're the mom. Okay. All right. I don't want to eat my broccoli. I want the chocolate ice cream in the freezer. So you want what I'm hearing you say is you want chocolate ice cream? Absolutely. Yes. We are gonna have Yay. chocolate ice cream after we finish your broccoli. Oh, I don't want to <laughs> eat it's <laughs> it's now cold. I don't want to eat cold broccoli. <laughs> That's why God invented microwaves. <laughs> No, I'm I'm literally traumatized because my parents made me sit at the table to finish yeah. my s- cooked spinach. Yeah, and I mean, I what they weren't going to let me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. they they it's said fun. they said yeah. no, and so the longer I waited, the colder it got. I mean, cooked spinach warm is bad. Cold. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a whole other topic. On you'll never win the food battle with kids. Like you I won't just would avoid that one, but yes. that's a whole other thing. That is, but, I, but yeah. I, get, I get the point. The point yeah. is use yes as a, an entryway to dialogue. Yes. I think for me, I often use no because it's inconvenient. We're doing something that's inconvenient for me, and I just don't feel like doing it right now. Right. Or that was not my idea. That was not within the plan, so it, that we're not going to do it. So for me, as, um, as a parent and as a a leader just looking for opportunities to buy into something somebody else wants to do has been a journey for me to be, to get myself to the place where I'm like, yes, you know what, actually we can do that. Or I wasn't thinking about that. Let me think about it. And I think that we could do that. And what I have learned is it's faster. It's the tension that's created by always like controlling from the top down, especially with kids. When I create space to say, yes, I'll hear you out, or yes, we can do that, it's just a few moments in time. And in the long run, I save time. Absolutely. I like that concept. Okay, the next one that I was thinking about talking about is, um, it's called active listening. This is this is newer for me. It's a, let's say it's a practice or a skill that has to be developed over time. Now, you guys are both therapists and have been doing this for a long time, so I'm going to guess this is, like, this is secondhand nature for you guys. <laughs> this is newer for me. So we talk about using active listening to help um, talk through a traumatic memory, let's say. So when we experience trauma, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but we, we often feel it in our body first, and then it shoots up into our brain the right side of our brain, which is tends to be the emotional side, works a little faster than the left side of our brain, which is the logical side. Mm-hmm. And depending on what happens with that shot of epinephrine, that that memory can get more lodged in the emotional part of our brain and has a hard time integrating across our brain. So when we are helping somebody who's reviewing something that happened to them, uh, we want to help integrate that memory across their brain. Ideally, that's done within 24 hours of a traumatic event happening. Um, If we can catch it within that window, we can see a lot lot better success. It's why after a a negative event at a school, the next 
within that day and the next day, it's flooded with social workers and counselors who are literally doing active listening, trying to help kids not lodge this as a traumatic memory, trying to integrate it across the brain. So when I, when I teach people how to do active listening, um, we just have this really simple three-step process for it. And the first is we're going to tap into the logical side of the brain and ask a logic question. What happened? So, or what happened first? So that's the logic side. And then I'm going to pair it with an emotional question. And how did that make you feel? So what happened and how did that make you feel? And wait, I'm waiting for the answer. And then once I get the answer, I'm just going to reflect back exactly their words, what I heard. That's it. And then I'm going to do it again. What happened next? And how did that make you feel? And then I'm going to repeat it back. So they're hearing it coming back. And what that does, interestingly, is connects both sides of the brain. All of a sudden, the logic and the emotions start to come together. It starts to make a little bit more sense. And they feel heard. Mm-hmm. There's, um, a, there's a passage in the Bible that just says, bear one another's burdens. So Jesus throws out this little golden nugget for all time and eternity that we're like, oh, bear one another's burdens. And then now we have all this scientific research that says when you feel heard, like it takes the power out of the situation, it validates your experience, it's part of the healing process. Like we have all these big scientific studies around it. And he just makes this little, bear one another's burdens. It helps the brain to put that trauma in perspective. It's the essence, I, I don't know if, um, I don't think this is an overstatement, but it's out of the CISM protocol, the Critical Incident Stress Management, and the act of listening is listening for a deeper meaning. Sometimes it's referred to that. To Anne's point, when you have an opportunity to connect that intellectual and emotional, it gives the person not only the ability, I've heard you, I, I, I hear you, but it gives the brain that ability to, I think of it as diluting. It dilutes the emotionality of the traumatic event in such a way that I can leverage my intellect to process and in certain time, certain types of protocols reprocess that incident. Mm-hmm. It's really a simple way of doing active listening. It's, let's call it the layperson's way to, to active listening. Yeah. It's, anybody can do it. You don't have to be trained. You don't have to be, you can just ask these two simple questions. And for me, the practice of it has come in just really focusing in on what somebody else has to say, turning off my brain. Cause as soon as somebody says something, I'm often like, Oh, I have a story about that. Oh, I had an experience right. similar to that. And so for me, turning that off, just really focusing on what they're going to say so that I know what to, how to repeat it back. And the active listening that you train is I ask a logic question first, and then I ask an emotional question second, and then I um, reflect back what I heard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think what, what, what happens in trauma, I think, is that it disorients a person's reality. Yes. What they thought was true or what was their reality is now fractured or fragmented. So they need help piecing back, not the puzzle like it was, but to reestablish a new puzzle of what is reality now. Yeah. And to Anne's point, we need to bear one another's burdens to do that. 
to be able to help an individual get reoriented about what is now true. And it's perfectly appropriate for the brain to be under distress in the process of reordering itself about what is now true. Is that be, would that be accurate? It, yes. In fact, there, so David Augsburger makes this statement. Being listened to is so close to being loved that most people don't know the difference. It would fit because... No, 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 no. Just don't talk. Okay. That was a mic drop. That's true. Hold you on. should have her say it again. Being listened to is so close to being loved that most people don't know the difference. Wow. It's rare that I'm speechless. <laughs> it, that is the most powerful thing I think I've heard in a long time. It's one of the reasons why I appreciate Anne and Trauma-Free World because they simplify these complex things in such a way that any of us can do it. And it fits with the neurology of the the, the um, neurobiology of the brain because the brain has trouble making distinctions. And active listening, she didn't say this, but when you actively listen, you give a gift. You give a gift. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is powerful. We have time for like one more strategy let's do that and then we'll have some concluding thoughts for the second part of this series and what else kind of stands out to you in your list let's end with with the power of presence the idea of being present and with someone there's a very big difference in being around someone and being present with someone um now, we often have to do tasks and take care of things, but it does take intentionality to put aside our agenda and focus in on somebody else and being present with them. Um, being present with someone is actually incredibly healing. Sometimes it takes just sitting next to someone and being quiet with them while they're in the middle of their pain. Being present with someone means I'm not going to fix your problem, but I'm going to listen to your problem and just be with you while you're sad about it. That's really hard to do, and it's also really powerful. It's, if I'm understanding you right, it's giving, giving them permission to feel without trying to micromanage or fix their emotion. I'm with you. I'm with you through this or in this Mm -hmm. somehow without trying to pretend like somehow you have the ability to fix something that can't be fixed Mm -hmm. to your earlier point. It changes everything. Mm -hmm. Trauma. I I liken this as our listener, if you're listening and you're measuring your ability to do this, I think of it like you're picking up a two-pound weight. Actually, you gave me this metaphor a long time ago. It's like 
that muscle hasn't been exercised, your ability, but give it a chance. Just lift the two pound weight and learn that you can eventually lift five. Mm-hmm. Like you, you can do this step by step or stage by stage. You don't need to be perfect. You just need to be intentional. Try it on for size. Find out what happens. Yeah. Does that make sense? That makes sense. Okay. Wow, some incredible stuff. I'm going to re-listen to this. I do. I normally re-listen to it. I do too. And honestly, I know I'm just like, I don't know if this is my ego, but I listen to our podcast and it's really good material. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? I enjoy this. But as we finish, closing thoughts... Like Ian has said, we could take any one of these and like do a whole podcast. But when we think about the the concept of being trauma informed, any parting thoughts about this conversation? There's um there's a gentleman. His name is Josh Ship, and he he does a bunch of work. Um, he was he came from a traumatic past, and now he is a public speaker. But one of the states statements he makes is this. He says. Every child is one caring adult away from being a success story. And I I often like to say, I think he would agree with this as well, but every person is one other person away from being a success story. Um, We do need other people to heal, and we do need other safe and healthy relationships. And I just love that you guys are having this conversation over and over again about... um, the importance of being in a relationship and uh, how healing that is. So thank you. No, no, thank you. Um, It's been a pleasure being able, I mean, again, the idea of listening is love is what I'm taking away. Presence, being present with another human being and affording them presence to listen. I feel like that's going to be my, my goal is to continue to build that muscle. I don't think I can add anything. I didn't think so, Dr. Rob. You're a man of great wisdom, <laughs> and your words do matter. But again, I love you too. This has been a great conversation. I really appreciate both of you. Thanks for letting me sit in on this, and you've brought a wealth of information. I'm going to be referring this to people I love. So thanks so much. Have them check out Trauma Free World. Trauma Free World. Just org. Just Google that and you can find it. We appreciate you tuning in to Mindful Conversations with Matt and Rob. We hope that you are blessed wherever that may lead you. <laughs>